engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 228. And today in the show, I'm joined by outdoor writer and public land whitetail specialist, Tony Peterson. And we're breaking down his 2017 public land successes, and we are examining his new game plan for 2018. And before we get things kicked off, I want to thank our friends at Lacrosse Boots for their support of this podcast. And as I've mentioned over the past couple weeks, I've been wearing Lacrosse rubber boots for almost two decades now. They continue to serve me without fail, keep me warm during the late season, they keep me comfortable walking to the tree stand all year long, they keep my feet dry. You know, I'm heading to Montana in just about one week, and I know on this hunt I'm going to be going up and down a river multiple times. So good waterproof rubber boots, very important. Nice high rubber boots, very important, because I'm going to be going through some decently deep water but these should have me covered for most of the time it's a great way to get in and out i can get in quietly i can access some spots that you normally wouldn't be able to so using water as an access route is a great tool and these rubber boots make that possible so i know they're gonna be a great tool for me i imagine if you're looking for boots they should do the job for you too so you can learn more if you're interested at lacrossefootwear.com all right welcome to the wired to hunt podcast brought to you by onyx and today we are joined again by tony peterson and tony's an outdoor writer he's been published in many well-known publications out there like bowhunter magazine or north american whitetail and he's a public land specialist and if you heard i think this was episode 222 uh just last month i think it was that was our public land masterclass. if you heard that podcast tony was on there a couple times because he's been on the show twice before actually and in those episodes, and I, I don't know what number those original episodes were, you should go back and listen to those, but in those ones, he shared a lot of helpful information. He's become really one of my favorite go-to people to talk to about public land, do-it-yourself hunts. Um, he's someone who I like to catch up with a few times a year, even off the podcast, just to catch up on what he's up to, how he's doing these things. He's just a, He's got a helpful perspective, a good way to talk about these things. So I'm excited to finally have him back on the show because it was almost, I think almost two years ago since he was on last. So 
today we're going to catch up with Tony, find out what's new in his hunting world. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to see if his tactics or ideas have changed at all since we last chatted. And then I'm hoping we can try to learn some new things from him by kind of breaking down what he did during his 2017 season. And then looking forward at his 2018 plans and diving into how he planned these trips, what he's hoping to do, what he's expecting, how he's going to try to tackle these different states at different times of year. I think he's hunting five different states um, on public land. So he's going to have some interesting things to talk about. I'm excited about that. But uh, what I'm not excited about is that my usual co-host, Dan Johnson's not here because of a scheduling conflict. So I'm stuck with Spencer Newharth. <laughs> and I'm just kidding, man. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for filling in. I will do my best to uh, fill in Dan's role. I'll uh, try to ask some of the worst questions to our guests. <laughs> I, got, I got a question for you. I got a question for you. That's that's uh-huh. how you got to start every one of them. <laughs> okay. All right. In, in all seriousness, though, man, speaking of Dan, we had a huge missed opportunity last week. Um, for those that didn't listen, last week we had Spencer and Dan and Furter and myself on the show talking about our own plans and goals and stuff for the year. And um, when we were talking about naming our bucks, this buck, uh, I think you call them like the Big Ten or the 5x5 five five or something really lame like that. Um, yep. But Dan, I gave Dan uh, the right to name that buck. Remember this? And you talked about how your favorite movie is Forrest Gump. And Dan then decided to name your buck Forrest. Well, and maybe you saw this on Instagram, but a bunch of people all commented saying that we really screwed it up because we should have named that buck Lieutenant Dan, who is a, a character in Forrest Gump and obviously the tie-in to Dan. Did you did you think about that afterwards? Did you see those comments afterwards, Spencer? I saw the comments, and uh, I can't believe that just went over our head like that. Yeah. But- I am on board with changing this deer's name to Lieutenant Dan. It, it feels more fitting since Dan is now hunting a buck named Spencer that I should hunt a buck named Dan. And even though he tried to get out of that and name it something else, uh, it has now come full circle and that this buck needs to be known as Dan. Yeah, well, I think the people have spoken, and, and Dan's not here to argue that, so I say we just go over his head and, and make the switch, huh? That's right. I'm pulling up the file folder now. So it's went from Big Ten to Forest to now Lieutenant Dan. Okay. Is there any way to like lock that on there so there's no more changes allowed? <laughs> uh, we'll just decide right now that right. that's who he is. And I'll let the other hunters in the area know if anybody sees this deal. <laughs> he goes by Dan. That's good. Get everyone on the same page. Um, anything new on that front? I know last time we chatted, you were, you know, talking about how you were trying to get things all lined up for opening day, taking a stab at him. Anything that you've done since then, or do you have any plans in the coming days to try to tighten up the plan? Nothing new on my end since we last spoke about a week ago. Uh, but this is kind of my last week um, for some different preparations to check cameras to get in last bit of scouting before that season opens on September 1st. So nothing new on my end, but how about with you, Mark? I see that you are putting some miles on your pickup and uh, getting some of those classic August cell phone pictures through a spotting <laughs> scope that we all see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've been, been getting eyes on a lot of bucks and driving around a decent bit. Um, I guess since we last chatted, I think I'd mentioned when we talked that I thought I maybe had seen Holyfield. Um, well, I saw that same buck again 
this is like four or five nights ago, maybe. Um, I still don't know for sure if it's him. I have, I've, I've been seeing like right at last light, he's been coming out into this bean field, but the frame looks a lot like him. So that's exciting, but I'm not going to get too excited yet. Um, and then in that same field, like two or three nights ago, I had a bachelor group of five different bucks come out and, um, all of them were at least two year olds, um, maybe a three year old or two in there. And then one definitely was a four year old or older, different buck, definite shooter that I've not seen before. So that was cool. Um, so that's at least two different mature bucks that I've seen come out into that field. And this is, this is really close to a spot I can hunt. I can't hunt this property, but it's, it's right next door basically. Um, so that was good. And I'm trying to think if I've seen anything else. I haven't checked my cameras yet that I have on my main Michigan property. I hung, well, the other big thing I guess I did is I went up to our Northern Michigan deer camp, um, and checked some cameras up there. No bucks, hardly at all on those pictures, but we, we don't seem to get any summer pictures of mature bucks at this property. Um, but we did have a bunch of bears on there. Um, but I got those cameras set and then the big project up there was trying to get our food plots planted. I don't know if you've heard on some of the past episodes where I've talked about this place, Spencer, but basically it's a little 40 acre property up in the big woods and swamp country in Northern Michigan that, uh, that my grandpa bought like 30 years ago. And, um, so the past few years we've been trying to make a few habitat improvements cause it's, it, it's been almost like void of deer completely. But three years ago we started trying to carve in these little plots. And so this is the third year I think now where we are, have something planted and, uh, excited about that but it was kind of a debacle man we we got up there and got to the plots and they were just completely overgrown with weeds i'm perpetually dealing with weeds because i just can't get up to this place uh, enough so we sprayed it in like late june i think so i was hoping by spraying it then it'd still be pretty well knocked down or at least not too badly grown over by the time we got back but i was wrong about that lots of weeds and we didn't, we weren't going to have another chance to get up there. So like this was yesterday. So yesterday was our only chance to do this. So I, I couldn't spray it and come back. So basically we just had to deal with what we had. So I had my little groundhog disc for the four wheeler and it took a long time, but it actually chewed up that stuff really good. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with what we got. It took a lot of circles over and over and over going around, but, but got it disced up, got the soil turned over. Well, I think I killed off most of those weeds um, so the, there might be some, some weed issues a little bit, but that's fine. It's not, it doesn't need to be a perfectly manicured, beautiful plot. Um, <clears throat> I feel good about the fact that we'll at least have good seed to soil contact for what we're planted. So, um, planted a mix of oats and winter wheat and some brassicas, um, which is something new for a long time. We were just able, we were just able to get oats planted up there because of how acidic the soil was, but we've been adding a lot of lime over the past few years. So it looks like our pH has improved enough that I think brassicas can take. So I'm excited to see that if that works out. And, uh, and that was basically the Northern Michigan project. Did, did a little bit of scouting up there, moved some cameras around. Um, so now I'm, I'm probably not going to get back up there till bow season. And, um, the rest of this, this next week, week and a half I've got left before Montana. I'm just scurrying around trying to get a bunch of stuff done here in Southern Michigan. I planted the, my brassica plots here on the main farm. And, um, moved some tree stands around a couple days ago. Um, you know, one cool thing and I'm rambling here, Spencer. So feel free to jump in and tell me to shut up if you want. Um, 
but I was I was trimming some lanes at a few stands, and I went back to where I think is probably my best location for the rut this coming fall. Um, I've got three tree stands that are all, actually four stands that are all kind of along this back bedding area on this property. And um, over the years, I've tried to improve that bedding area by doing some hinge cutting. Well, I'm walking back to one of these tree stands that's back downwind of this bedding area, or it's located to be downwind on, on a west wind. And as I get up to the edge of this bedding area, this hinge cut area, I stand there. I'm just kind of looking around, taking in the scene, kind of, you know, happily patting myself on the back about how good it looks and how thick and nasty it is. And all of a sudden, a deer jumps up from like 20 yards away from me, goes running away. And it's a nice 10-point buck, like at least a three-year-old buck, maybe older. You know, it's pretty quick. Um, but a nice, mature buck that was bedded right in those hinge cuts I made. So that was cool to see something that I worked on, you know, a few years ago and now it's, you know, paying off with deer using it. So were you improving a bedding area there or were you creating a bedding area? Like, do you think there's any chance that buck would have been there otherwise without those hinge cuts? So he wouldn't have been where he specifically was. There was originally a bedding area, um, a small bedding area. And so I, I'd taken note of that some years ago and, and saw that deer were bedding there. Um, but I, I thought to myself, okay, there's this bit of high ground on the backside of the swamp. I bet you I can make it bigger and extend it lengthwise down this ridge farther. And that just might, you know, draw more deer to bed here, might get some more buck activity if I do that. So like I mentioned over the year, I've done a couple times I've done this, extended the hinge cut to make this area much bigger. And so he was at the far end of the new stuff. So um, this area that he was bedded in is an area hinge cut last spring. Um, that, that's maybe mm, 50 to 75, maybe 50 to 75 yards extended out from where the old bedding area originally was. So he was, he was bedded at the far end of it. I can imagine this. If you imagine this bedding area being kind of relatively narrow, but long, he was at the far end of one of the, of the, if it's like a long rectangle, who's the far end of the rectangle at the very end of it bedded up underneath some of these hinge cuts looking i'm assuming he was looking out towards the open stuff ahead of him so that was uh that was encouraging to see and i've got a tree stand that's 50 yards from there um now that's not the kind of thing i would like hunt that buck bed from that tree stand so it's a really hard to access place so i only hunt these stands during the rut and i go in really really far before daylight circle back through the back door of the swamp and then if i hunt those spots it's an all-day sit i can't get out of there um but it was good to see and um when we've got a west wind in november that'll be one of the spots i'll probably be and that's neat because like the the hinge cutting is something simple that like anybody can do it doesn't take a bunch of resources it doesn't take a bunch of equipment uh you know and that's something you probably knocked out like one afternoon uh yeah. in the past to to get that buck there yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I I don't have any fancy equipment or anything. I just had a cheap chainsaw, and like you said, it was a one day thing where I went back there and did did a handful of those cuts. And uh, you know, all you gotta do is opens up some sunlight, put some cover on the ground, and and those deer love it. So that was good to see. And and walking around in there, um, you know, I wish I I wish I was doing this two months ago or three months ago rather than now. But just my schedule has been nuts and. I think that some activity in August is, is not going to impact me in November. Um, but in a perfect world, I wouldn't have been doing this. But here I am. Anyways, I was doing it. So I'm walking around in there and was clearing some lanes. Because like I said, I've got three stands that are along this bedding area. Um, two of them are for westerly winds. One of them is for an easterly wind. Um, and just 
kind of putzing around in there, it is just so tore up. There are so many rubs. There's so many. You could see old scrapes. You could see beds. Um, and I usually go in here in the spring too and do a quick scout and shed hunt. And those are the, usually that's the only time I ever go in here. And um, man, it just looks dynamite. So last year, not from this specific tree stand, but from the other westerly tree stand, which is about 200 yards down the bedding area, maybe give or take. I had nearly a shot at Holyfield from that spot. He came through at 40 yards and my shooting lane was just cut to 35. So he was just back in a little bit too far back in the cover. Um, but you know, he's definitely in the area. So maybe, uh, two, three months from now, we'll get an encounter with him in here and the whole story will come full circle. We, uh, as listeners would all look forward to that. And no, get rid of this deer, move on to something new, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, so, so I've blabbed on for a long time now, but we got to get Tony on here quick. He's waiting, but really quick before we do that, um, any final plug for rut radio, because our rut radio episodes are going to start up not next week, but the week after that, right? Do you want to give people a quick reminder of what to expect there? Yeah. So this will be the third season now of rut radio. The first episode will go up September 5th. And the goal with rut radio is to bring you the most relevant, relevant, uh, whitetail, intel anywhere um and so we will be recording these episodes like on a tuesday we'll talk to four different hunters that are very well respected for their whitetail knowledge talk about what they've been seeing for deer movement what they expect to see for deer movement uh, we'll get that podcast up on wednesday and we try to make them really digestible like 30 minute episodes so this is something you can knock out on your commute to work or over your lunch break whatever it might be and uh we're gonna be bringing those episodes every week and talk to hunters across the nation yeah so if if you're new to the podcast or for some reason if you haven't subscribed yet definitely subscribe now so you'll get those episodes so by subscribing to the wired hunt podcast you're going to get the rut radio episodes too they're kind of just like a mini series within our own podcast here so uh make sure you subscribe and like uh spencer said the 5th of september we'll have the first one on there and i think Right, I'll have been hunting for a couple days by then in Montana, and you'll be hunting a couple days in South Dakota. So probably the first update from our hunts will be on that episode too. So that's exciting. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's become it's becoming more and more popular to hunt that early September, late August where states allow. So right off the bat, we're gonna have uh, some unique reports for you guys. Hopefully, Lieutenant Lieutenant Dan will be hitting the dirt, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, man. Well, let's uh, take a quick break, and then uh, we'll give Tony a call. Real quick before we do that, though, I want to thank our partners at Onyx. And as I've been mentioning now for a, quite a decent bit, the Hunt app is something that I've been using a lot all through the off-season. I use it during the season. It is a mobile application that allows you to see aerial maps, topographic maps, it shows property maps, you can see the actual private properties and the landowners, you can see the public land parcels, borders, designations, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of handy tools in there. I was just using Onyx Maps yesterday actually while out scouting this new property I got permission on on the west side of the state here in Michigan. And we we're out looking picking different trees to hang stands. We're kind of doing some last minute stand prep and walking around scouting picking trees and i would mark a tree on my app and then what i was going to do since there's another guy that's hunting this property with me my plan was i'm going to mark all these trees they think would be good i'm going to set them up with tree stands over the next couple days and then i can send those locations directly to him you can actually text a waypoint 
to a friend and then if they have the Onyx app, they can open that app, it pulls up in their Onyx map, and they can see it right there on their phones too. So this is a great way to share locations in this kind of situation if, if my friend's not able to actually get to one of these spots before the season. And if the first time he ever heads in is going to be for a hunt, this way he's not going to be bumbling around looking for reflectors or some tape or something. He can just follow that white point on his phone right to the spot. So just another way that the Onyx Hunt app is helping me out a lot. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to onyxmaps.com. You can search for Onyx on your mobile app store of choice. And if you want 20% off, you can use the promo code WIRED. That's W-I-R-E-D for 20% off. All right, back with us now is Tony Peterson. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, this is uh, the lucky number three time you've been on the show third appearance yep. so uh glad yeah, you can you uh, have, do it again you didn't have me on last year it was kind of a bummer i know we're gonna have to work double time to uh catch up for that <laughs> now <laughs> um well i appreciate it man i love doing this podcast yeah it's fun I, i've enjoyed our past two episodes a lot and i was just saying when me and spencer were doing the intro um how those are a couple of my favorite episodes and you've really become one of those guys who i've you know turned to as as um someone I've been able to learn from a lot as far as how to do a lot of these public land hunts. And, you know, in, in particular, I've started to do some of this Western whitetail public land stuff that, you know, you've done quite a bit of too. So your, your yep. advice and ideas has definitely been helpful to me. So I just thinking, I thought today we could kind of, like you just mentioned, catch up on what you did last season and then look forward to this coming season, which opens for all three of us here in just a couple of weeks. So, and you know, like we usually try to do, I'm I'm hoping we can kind of use all those examples to dig into some things, um, learn some of the different things that are going on. And, and then I think there's a handful of other things you and I had kind of spitballed about. Otherwise it might be interesting to cover too, especially like with our families and some of that kind of stuff, um, how all of that impacts what we're doing as deer hunters. So that was, that was my game plan. Um, does that sound like a good plan to you? Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 right up my alley, so I'm 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 good with that. Cool. So so you mentioned we didn't touch base last year. Um, how was the 2017 season for you? Uh, it was good. Um, you know, I had uh, I had a good run in a couple states, and I ended up um, you know having a lot of fun. Killed some bucks out there. Killed a doe in northern Wisconsin on public land that was way harder to kill than any of the bucks I ran into. Um, and just had a, I had a good season. It was, it was a lot of fun, a lot of cool encounters, and I'm really, really optimistic for this year after last year. Where, where all did you hunt? Um, last year I hunted North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and I feel like there's one other state I'm missing there. Um, those for sure. But I had, I hunted public in Wisconsin. I hunted public in North Dakota and South Dakota, um, and some in Minnesota. So I, I spent a lot of time on, you know, common ground out there and it was, it was just a fun season. Of course, you know, I went elk hunting in Colorado and did some antelope and stuff too. But you know, as far as white tails, those were the main States I focused on. Yeah. What, uh, what was that doe hunt like? What made that one so special? Cause it was so hard. It was just, you know, you know this living in Michigan and having hunted where you've hunted, 
uh, some of these states are just way more difficult than other states. You know, and it usually boils down to pressure and predators and, you know, deer population and winter kill, the whole thing. And where I hunt in northern Wisconsin, it just consistently kicks my butt more than anywhere. And I last, last November, I carved out nine days to hunt public land up there. And I thought, you know, I had a, I had a couple doe tags. I had a buck tag. I'm like, this will be, this will be a blast. And I got my butt kicked almost every day and had several does that I was just trying to put in the freezer and got busted drawn on them and finally killed one. And it was, it was way harder to do than any of the bucks I killed uh, last year on anywhere I went. And, you know, it, it's kind of an interesting example of what's going on in the hunting industry because I pitched that story to several of the magazines I work for and every editor passed on it because it was a doe. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of indicative of where we are uh, yeah. as an industry. But to me, you know, in my experience, it was just, it, I, I really had to bring my A game up there just to kill a doe in a way that I don't even have to do to kill big bucks in some of these states. And so it's, it's always interesting to me how it varies so much from state to state, county to county, and just, you know, parcel to parcel almost, you know. Oh, yeah. So this is like big woods habitat, right, up there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're, where I'm kind of focusing on is right where the last of the egg ends and the real big woods starts. So you do have, it's not totally devoid of agriculture. I mean, you can play off of some of the, the private fields around there. There might be an alfalfa field or a hay field or something, but for the most part, it's, it's big woods stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, that's we were just talking before you came on about uh, some work that I've been doing up on my family's northern Michigan property. And that's uh, this little 40-acre yep. chunk that's surrounded by state land, like 10,000 acres of state land. And it's just all big woods, either there's a little bit of hardwood timber, but then there's just a lot of swamp. And um, it's so hard to find deer in that kind of area because it's it's pretty much homogenous terrain, all timber. Yep. And, you know, for years, the population has been really low and the hunting up there has just been brutal. Like we, we, like our little group of guys that goes up there has hardly killed anything. So I'm really, I'm really trying to refocus on hunting up there and trying to like figure out, okay, how can I apply all the things I've learned now as like an adult hunter to this place that I hunted growing up as a kid and did horrible lot? Like, how can I start to figure this place out? And what was your take? How did you end up trying to tackle that big woods slash, you know, a little bit of ag, but how did you approach that? I know you didn't end up killing a buck, but how were you trying to do it? And how'd you ultimately kill that doe? Well, so my, my strategy keeps changing and, you know, on the, on the land that I'm hunting, um, it's, it's in a managed forest program. So it's, it's private. It's open to public, but there's, there's these rules on it. So, you know, you can't run a trail camera unless you contact the owner and get inform or you get permission and you just have to, you have to go about it differently. You can't leave tree stands up. So it's like you put up a stand, take it down, put up a stand. It's, it's almost too much work for what it's worth. But what I started doing is going in and looking for fresh signs setting up there. And if I'd see a deer or see something that, you know, observed something, I'd move in the next day. And I kept moving. And I don't know how many stands I put up and took down in those nine days, but it was a lot. And <laughs> You know, I, I didn't kill a buck. I did see a buck that I thought was probably 160, which is, which is, Whoa. you know, a giant for public land. Um, and I saw a couple others that were, 
you know, 115 to maybe mid 130s. So it wasn't like I was, wow. you know, it, it was interesting because it was really hard, but I saw one of the biggest deer I've ever seen on public land. And just, I think those kind of hunts, I think what you're talking about on your Northern Michigan property, I think you just got to get in there and get where the deer are now. It's almost more like a, uh, an elk hunt. You know, if you go out and you see this beautiful meadow, you know, in, you know, the mountains in Colorado or whatever, you know, it may look great, but it doesn't matter if they're not, if there's not fresh sign there and there's not elk around there, it doesn't matter. So you just got to keep going and keep going. And I kind of think in the big woods, you know, we think of deer as being, you know, occupying, you know, let's say there's 10 deer per section or six deer per section. And you think, okay, they should be spread out. They're not, you know, one's a doe group that lives in one little area and this buck lives here. And, you know, they're only occupying a little bit of the woods most of the time. And if you're not around that, it sucks bad to be up yeah. there hunting. And so I think it's just a, a real mobile strategy and is is how it's usually going to play out for you. Like you're going to have to keep looking, you yeah. know? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I, I um, you know, we've got this little 40 and on that 40 about, well, of this 40, all of it was overgrown with stuff. And over the last couple of years, as I was talking about, we've actually carved in a couple little tiny food plots. And so we're getting some consistent doe activity now on the private stuff. Um, but I, I keep on being tempted to take a season and like spend a bunch of time up there and just explore all the surrounding public around it and do just what you said. Bounce around from yep. spot to spot to spot to spot. And, and there's some old clear cuts in the surrounding area that I, I got to imagine there's some deer relating to those maybe a little bit. So I feel like, as you yep. said, kind of jump around, observe, adjust. I, I think it would be dreadful for anyone listening or watching because I probably will hardly ever see any deer. <laughs> so it might be really boring content that year, but it could be really cool if I did figure it out. Well, it, it, it is, and it's super rewarding. And, you know, the thing about having swamps everywhere, because I, I hunt places like that too, and to me it's the hardest kind of hunting out there for whitetails. And what I think you know, especially if you're going to focus anytime, you know, Halloween on, if you can look at your aerial photography and see, you can kind of, you can kind of see, I call it a figure in the swamp where it'll be like a point across from a point. And it, it's hard to see when you're on the ground walking around. But if you look at the aerial photography, sometimes you'll see those and that's where they cross a lot. And so usually if I'm dealing with huge wood stuff, I don't, I don't do the, the clear cut thing as much because I may, I may be in an area that has, you know, four square miles of clear cut and it's like, well, okay. So yeah, maybe the deer are eating the fresh browse somewhere in there, but it's basically, you know, you're dealing with this huge, huge piece of land. And so if you find some of those, those places in the swamps where it's easier for them to cross, um, or there's an Island in the swamp that they can get to and bet on, they love those because of the predators then you can kind of narrow down your search you know but it's like it's a process man you know it's it's just not easy to find and just because you see that figure eight on the aerial photography you might walk in there and realize you can't really hunt it with the prevailing winds or it just might not be the right spot but you can kind of shortcut the process a little bit by doing that sometimes yeah no that's a good idea i i definitely finding those like little pinch points, that kind of thing, I think is, is a great way to try to narrow it down. I've, I've started looking for some things like that or just starting to identify all the different 
kind of internal edges. Like there's no like obvious edges around here because it's not like big timber meeting up to a crop field or something, but I've been trying yep. to find like edge between swamp and hardwoods or between hardwoods and pines um, or yep. some things like that. I think, I think that's what I'm going to start doing is, just, is take my map and just start marking like each one of these different features that I think might have something to it. And then next spring I just need to go and just walk every single bit of it and like really dedicate some time to figuring this place out because I don't know. It just seems like, to your point, it would be a lot of fun to figure that out and try to make it happen. Well, it, it is, and it's you know it's so different. You know, you talk about making food plots, and that's a blast. But this is a totally different style of hunting. You know, I mean, you're you're going out trying to figure out what these deer are doing in these low densities and these places that are hard to get to, and you know, talking about soft edges back in the timber and that kind of stuff. Man, I, it's it's just it's rewarding. It's cool, and it, you know. You mentioned going out next spring. I'll tell you what, I learned more about what deer do in the swamps in March than any other time. Just because you can, you know, they're frozen, so you can walk anywhere you want to. Mm -hmm. And then you find some of those places that those those big bucks just tear up year after year. And they got those, they, you know, there's some kind of terrain feature or something that's advantageous to them. And it's, it can work in your favor, but it's, you gotta, you know, you gotta burn some boot leather to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got to put in that work. I think it's, it's time to stop kind of twiddling my thumbs up there and just settling for the status quo and just being like, ah, this is just deer camp. I'll just have a nice time hanging out with the family. (laughs) It's time to actually put some real time into making the hunting a little better. So I got to do it. Um, Spencer, Tony, Tony, on the other end of the spectrum, you have like the Dakotas and Nebraska and, you know, a amount of tree coverage there is the least as anywhere else in, in the nation. How did you do hunting there in 2017? Because I think those are three of your favorite states that you you know visit pretty regularly. Yeah, they are. You know, I like I like uh, fewer trees. Um, it, it, that's way more enjoyable to me than having, you know six square miles of trees it's just so much easier to figure out you know i mean i always i I always think of deer like walleyes you know if there's if there's a crp patch and with one fence row of trees or you know there's there's some kind of you know patch of cedars somewhere they just gravitate toward that stuff and so if you get out into some of those places in south dakota and north dakota where you know it looks more like pheasant territory than anything it's just a lot easier to figure out where the deer are probably going to go and, and you can observe them, you know, that's the, the big hindrance when you're hunting the big wood stuff is you can't see anything. So you, you know, you go run trail cameras or you might try to glass a fresh clear cut or something, but for the most part, until you're hunting, you just don't see a lot of deer movement. And when you're hunting those states that are more open, you can observe so much better. And that's like, you know, my strategy, the, the way that I, I tend to kill a lot of bucks out West, I mean, that's that's what I do. I, you know, I filled my tag in North Dakota and South Dakota last year, both by just observing and then moving in. But Tony, you're kind of playing it off like it's easy almost. But I I live here, I hunt here, I know it's it's <laughs> not as easy as you're making it sound. But walk us through that South Dakota hunt because if I had to challenge somebody to go kill a deer like the way you did, which was late September from the ground on public land and uh hunting in i think those were pretty rough conditions at that time i thought i think it was like raining and windy yeah, it was, all weekend it was terrible. 
Right. I, I don't think many guys would succeed. Yet you went out and you did that and you killed probably a, a five and a half year old whitetail. Uh, just an awesome buck. Tell us about that hunt. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a cool deal, man. Um, you know, I, I got on that deer. Just honestly, I was driving down the road after hunting in the morning in the rain, going back to camp to have lunch. And I saw three mule deer bucks on this just kind of cleared out hillside on a walk-in ranch and I had nothing going on. So I went and stalked them. Cause my, you know, your tag is good for either mule deer or a whitetail. I got in on those bucks, blew them out of there. And I was like, why are there, I've never seen mule deer here. Why are they here? And I kind of, you know, it kind of rode around in the back of my head. Well, I ended up seeing a whitetail buck cross there in the dark coming back that night, going into the same spot. And I'm like, all right, well, so I'm, now I know I'm missing something. And because it was so rainy on the opener, I mean, it, it was, it was like biblical. It was crazy how much rain we got. Um, I walked in there with a ground blind cause there was, there was no, you could tell just by looking at it that you probably weren't going to find a good tree stand tree. And what had happened is the rancher or somebody had cleared out a bunch of those low cedars in there and there was fresh growth coming up. And so these deer were, were, kind of stage in there kind of browsing but they were they could get on this hillside that was really only like 100 yards off a road but they could be out of sight and so when i got in there you could just see evidence of browsing everywhere and there was a great big pile of cedar skeletons so i just put a ground blind up next to it and i thought you know if i get sick of sitting in the rain i'm gonna i'm gonna come and sit in this thing and it just so happened that because it was so rainy there wasn't hardly any other hunters out there. It was opening weekend and it was like a pretty much a ghost town because it was downpours. And I ended up going sitting there and the buck that came in, there's two bucks that came in and the little guy and then the big one that I killed. And I had seen those deer the day before a mile down the road at 11 o'clock on their feet, but they were on private. And so they were just covering ground and browsing in some of these spots and, and keying off one of the fields on that walk-in ranch. And then they would kind of staged their way back to bed and i just got lucky i got in there you know you could get you can get around real quiet when it's a downpour got in there and those those two bucks fed past me and i ended up getting an arrow on that big 10 pointer but it was you know it it was honestly probably due mostly to that bad weather because there's no way those deer would have been as consistent on a spot that close to the road if it would have been a nice opener. I just, I just don't think. I mean, I can't prove that. But I think that the downpour kept the pressure away, and those deer were so comfortable being in a killable spot. You, I, I think you I think you had a small group with you on that hunt. How did everyone else do that was in camp? Uh, they did well. Um, my One of my buddies killed a nice 10-pointer um, the, the second night of the season. And then another buddy hit one, hit a, hit a smaller buck, um, that we never found. He hit it. He didn't hit it very well and it rained all night. So we ended up grid searching for a long time and just never picked him up. Um, so really we, you know, shot opportunity wise, it was incredible. Um, you know, my buddy Eric killed a great 10 pointer, made a perfect shot. Um, and that was another deer. We saw him and his buddy the day before the season opened feeding in a spot. Eric went in there, hung a stand, had to tweak it a little bit the next night and that buck came in at 15 yards and he dumped him. So it's, it was, you know, anytime that you can go two for three on, on public land in a short week into bow hunting is, is pretty solid, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah. And before we move on, like I want to stress how difficult it is to do what you just did. I mean, where you were hunting is uh, gets ton of firearm pressure. There are loads of deer killed there every year. Um, it is an appealing area to hunt. And so there's loads of archery pressure as well. And, and then like you talked about, it was public land on the ground in the rain. Uh, you know, I, I was so impressed that you guys went out there and had that kind of success. Well, you know, to me, it's, it's all relative, right? You know, you, you're from South Dakota, so your experience is largely from South Dakota, right? And you, when you talk a ton of rifle pressure, I hear that, and I'm sure Mark hears it too, being from Michigan. <laughs> it's all relative. Cause, you know, when I think of, the, just, just as an example, one of the private farms I hunt in Minnesota, um, they have like three different shotgun groups that hunt there that have like 15 guys apiece. So just in a couple of weeks of shotgun season, 45 people will hunt that farm. And that's not counting muzzleloaders and bow hunters and random gun hunters who aren't part of the group. And so I always just, you know, I, when I hear about a lot of pressure, I'm like, well, I've been around a lot of pressure my whole life. So it's not, you know, I don't want to use that as an excuse to not go, right? Or as an excuse to not hunt as hard as possible, because that's kind of what we do a lot of times. We say, well, this is going to be hard. I'm probably not going to succeed. So I'm not going to, you know, not going to work too hard at it. And that's not really the best way to go about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, speaking of like making excuses for not going out or not hunting as hard, um, rain. I feel like rain is one of those things that people oftentimes like, eh, it's not going to be that good or I don't want to get soaked and they don't go hunting. I've always personally loved rainy days for hunts. Um, I feel like I've heard you too in the past talk about how, you know, bad weather is no excuse. Is, is that right? Do you, do you love those kind of days too? Uh, yeah, huge. Uh, I, I would pick rain over any condition to hunt in anywhere, public, private. I don't care. Um, I just, I don't think deer like being bedded down in the rain. I think they, I think they just have the urge to move more. And I don't, I don't know why, if it's just a discomfort thing or what, but I'm, you know, for me, I'm looking for conditions that people don't want to hunt in first. You know, the deer are always going to be out there moving. You know, if it's hot, if it's windy, if it's rainy, they're going to move. We, we think they don't and they do, but I want to be out there when other people aren't there. That's what matters to me more. And so I'm, I'm all in if it's 90 degrees or if it's 40 mile per hour winds or whatever, I don't care. I, I like it when it, I like empty parking lot. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. What, what, when you have that kind of scenario, like you had there for that opening weekend hunt in South Dakota, where you see a bunch of rain on the forecast, does that change your strategy at all? Because, okay, I see I've got all this, all this rain. Did that change your perspective as to how you wanted to approach that hunt, where you sat, anything like that? Like one thing that jumps to my uh, mind is maybe if it's super rainy, it's going to be really quiet going in there. So you might be able to be a little more aggressive getting close to bedding or something because you can be doing that quietly. I don't know if that's something that you ever think about, but what else is there? It, well, yeah, it changed, you know, my whole strategy. If I go to you know, a state like South Dakota where I'm hunting, or if I go to Nebraska or Oklahoma or somewhere, my, my first strategy is to identify a bunch of ponds and sit over water. I like, and that's early season, mid season, late season deer drink every day. And I like water. Um, I intended to do that in South Dakota until we knew at least the first four days of the season, we were going to get dumped on. So I ended up, you know, most of my planning was where are these ponds? I'm going to go sit. And then seeing that forecast, 
you know, developed the closer the hunt got, then it was like, all right, well, now we got to call an audible and hunt them some other way. And so the rain, like the rain aspect, you know, that, that changes your strategy. some. but for me, if I can get over a bean field in the rain, that's where I'll be first. And then if I'm not on something in the rain, I'll go for a still hunt and just look around and figure it out. And one thing that I learned last year, um, while hunting in South Dakota is I, I did that. I got, I had a storm come in while I was sitting on a stand. So I had to get down and I had already had two bucks come out into the field. And so I went and just snuck around to see where they came from. And the, this like grassy knoll that just feeds off of this uh, field that they were in was so covered in deer beds. It was incredible. And I didn't, I didn't need to hunt it cause I ended up killing that buck, but I just filed that away. And part of the reason I went exploring was, like it's a downpour this is going to be a low impact thing and i want to see where those deer were coming from and so you can kind of you know you may have to do things differently but you can sneak around take a look and and scout you know we've we've gotten so scared about doing doing that and bumping deer or you know a lot of us are trying to save deer on private land or save you know you know quality action i guess and when you're on public land, especially if you got four or five days, I'm not saving anything. Like I don't, I don't want to spook deer, but I don't care, you know? And so you can, you can take some risks and go try to figure some stuff out. I think, you know, I think a lot of times we play it just way too safely. Yeah. What, uh, what was next? You, you had that success in South Dakota, you killed the doe in Wisconsin. Where, where else did you find success? Where are the other States? Um, I killed a little buck in North Dakota, um, in the worst wind I've ever hunted in. Um, we had, I went out with my buddy, Tyler Pierce. I'm not sure if you know him or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we went out, Tyler and I met up out there and we had any deer tags so we could hunt mule deer and whitetails. And when we got there, the morning I got there, it was nice and calm, pretty warm. We were, we were right in mid October. So it was kind of no man's land. And that night the wind came in and we hunted in horrible wind up to 55 miles an hour for almost the rest of our trip. Um, and it was rough. I mean, I was on, I found some bucks, a couple of really good bucks that I could not set up for because the wind never gave up and it was, it was tough, but I ended up, I ended up setting a stand and just digging my heels in and saying, well, I'm, I'm going to sit through this wind. And we had a high wind advisory. It was 55 miles an hour sustained. Yikes. And I got into that tree and I was like, you know, the first thing I thought of was like, if I die because this tree tips over, uh, this is so dumb. <laughs> and so, and, and then I'm like, even if this buck comes in or a buck comes in, I can't stand up and shoot. There's no way I'm going to be comfortable doing that. So I climbed down, got on the ground and had seven does and a little buck come in. And I thought, man, I've only got one day left. We haven't killed anything. If they give me a really good shot, I should probably just thump him, throw him in the cooler. And that's what happened. And the next night it calmed down and I put Tyler in there and the, the 10 pointer that I was set up for this ancient buck with, he was limping and he had the Roman nose. He was just a cool deer. He came right down and made one little decision that brought him just out of Tyler's range. I got to watch the whole thing uh, from sitting up on a the hill across from him, and it was so close. But that was that was North Dakota in a nutshell. It was crazy windy. That's another one of the situations, though, right? You, you some people would say they wouldn't go out and hunt in those kind of conditions, but you're you're going no matter what, right? Well, you have to. Um, you know, I don't. 
do, doing what I do for a living, you know, everybody thinks I get paid to hunt and I don't, I get paid to write and create content, but I create more content if I kill more stuff. So I don't really, I can't afford to just take bad days off, you know? And it's, if I did, if I did say, you know, I'm only going to hunt when the conditions are pretty decent, I'd probably only hunt half of the time. And I, I don't really want to do that, you know? Um, so it's just, it is what it is. You just go. Yeah. And when can, you're on, go ahead. I was going to say, and that same kind of thing applies to even guys that don't make a living making content or something, because a lot of, a lot of hunters have a limited amount of time they can hunt. You know, they can just hunt the weekends. And if you've got really bad wind or rain this weekend or two weekends in a row or whatever, are you just not going to hunt at all in October? Are you going to take off the time that you would, you know, to do the thing you love and then just not go because the conditions are bad. I would always argue that, you know, even if the conditions are bad and and we talk a lot about, or at least I talk a lot about, you know, waiting for the right conditions to go in for the kill in certain places like that, how important timing is. That doesn't mean you can't hunt. Yeah. That just means, okay, if the weather's lousy or whatever, if the wind's so bad, you don't think a lot of deer are going to be moving. Maybe you do not go to your number one stand where the big buck that you've been after all season yeah. is at, but go hunt some public Go hunt yep. whatever property you haven't been to for a while and just have a good time. You know, go out there and see what happens. Yeah, that's that's such a good point. I mean, it, you know, we should say if you're stuck hunting 15 acres and that's all you have, you know, you, you might not want to go in there every possible chance you can, right? Yeah, yeah. But that's why you just try really hard not to get stuck in that situation. And, you know, I, I'm like you guys. I'm, I'm looking for spots all the time, public, private, whatever. Um, just, just for that reason, if, if I have a chance to go, I have to for my job, but I want to anyway. And I see this, this happen a lot where it's, it's just kind of easier to say, you know, oh, it's October 10th and it's kind of hot. I'm not going to go cause it's not going to be any good anyway. And man, I'm here to tell you that that's just really not true. Yeah. It's not November 7th when it's, you know, 20 degrees in the morning, but you can sure have a lot of fun out there still. And, you know, I always look at it like we, we go fishing a lot in the summer. I take my little girls fishing and I, I hate waking up in the summer, you know, 45 minutes before first light to go fish smallmouth or whatever. Cause I'm like, I just want to hit the alarm and sleep. But every single time I get out there on that lake and that sun's rising and we're throwing top waters for smallmouth, it's beautiful. I'm like, I never regret doing this. Yeah. And it's the same thing when I get into that tree stand. I'm never like, oh, this was a stupid idea. I should have stayed home. I'm always like, this was an awesome idea, you know? <laughs> yeah. To that same point, um, in most situations, it would be considered unorthodox to, like, hunt in the morning, you know, prior to, say, October 15th. Most guys just aren't doing it. But when you're on those public land, uh, you know, a, a set schedule, like you only got five days to hunt, do you find yourself hunting any mornings at all? All the time. I don't ever take the morning off. So this is another thing that w the lies that we believe about deer hunting, like a lot of people who, who, you know, know a lot about deer will say that don't hunt them in the mornings. Well, what if you have an awesome situation to go catch some deer staging coming off a field to go bed? Like what, if, what if you live in a state like Minnesota where our gun season this year starts on November 3rd. So we have a half a million gun hunters out there. Wow. On November 3rd. So I can't count on the rut. So I'm going to take every morning off until what? October 20th? I just, no way. And, you know, as an example, last year in, uh, in Minnesota, I killed my buck 
the second morning of the season, September 16th or 17th or whatever, coming through the stage on his way back from feeding. And it was a kind of a process to set up and get in. You know, you kind of had to circle around and it had to leave pretty early. But that was a great morning hunt, killed a nice buck. And then in South Dakota, I killed that buck in the morning in the same kind of situation where he was working his way back from feeding to go bed. And we like to say, well, you're just going to screw it up. Always oh, back in their beds before first light. I'm like, that's crazy. Every deer, every situation, you know, it just usually takes a lot more work to figure out a good morning stand in the early season than it does the, the evenings. You know, I mean, in the evenings, we go set a food plot or a field edge, and it's pretty simple hunting. In the morning, you got to think about how you get in there without spooking everything, and it's just a different strategy, you know, but it can totally be done. It, it kind of relates back to what we were just saying about the weather, you know, like, if you don't have the perfect conditions, maybe don't go to your perfect set until you have the right conditions, but you can still find a ways to, to go hunt and have a good time. I feel like with this kind of situation, if you've got a really small property and you know, you don't have the right setup for a morning hunt, like it's, there's not a good backdoor access route or something, maybe in that situation, yeah, yeah don't hunt those mornings. If you can't safely, if you can't safely pull off a morning hunt without screwing it up, maybe that's not a good idea. But if there is a way to do it that takes a little extra work, to your point, why not? Um, I mean, I'm in the same boat as, as what you described, Tony, in that I, I usually don't hunt a lot of mornings on, like, my main Michigan, like my little small Michigan private farms because I can't get in easily without spooking deer. But, you know, when I'm going yep. out on some of these public land hunts, like I was in Montana last year, um, public land, and I had a pretty tight amount of time. I only had, like, four, four and a half days. I decided just like what you said, I was like, I don't, I don't have time to, I don't have enough time to be able to sacrifice those mornings. I need to try to figure out some way yep. to make it work. So I had to take an extra long route away around the food source to get away from that. So I didn't spook deer there coming through the back door, yep. getting to the back of the bedding area. And, uh, you know, it paid off. I saw some bucks, almost had some shots. Um, so I, you know, kind of to all these things is right. It's situation specific. You need to be smart about when you take your shots, how you do it. But there's definitely, yep. if there's anything I've learned, you know, over these years talking to so many different people on the podcast, it's, it's that there's no like black and white rules. There's lots of 100%. ideas and frameworks to think about, but you need to be able to be flexible based on the specific circumstances. That's, that it's a hundred percent true. And that, you know, what you're talking about with small properties and some of them you can do, some of them you can't. The thing about it is, is when you say you can't, you can't hunt bucks in the morning in the early season. You should never do it. Then you just like, you just giving yourself an excuse to not even try. Or it's like, how many people have you heard say, well, it's, it's too windy. The deer just aren't going to move. Like that's crazy. But we, we say it and we, we live by it sometimes. And I just look at that stuff and I go, so all the deer are just not going to move today. Like there's no situation where you can figure out how to, how to get in there and hunt them in the morning. That's crazy. You know I mean? Some it's always worth investigating to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. A theme that a theme that you've touched on a lot is avoiding pressure. And so if I'm thinking about when the most amount of other hunters are in the woods, it's probably going to be like opening weekend and that could be any time depending on your state. And then like come the rut that was first, 15 yep. days of November. So do you hunt mid October a lot and are maybe other hunters overlooking that time period because, uh, just there aren't very many people in the woods. Yeah. Big time. I mean, if you're, 
if you're a public land guy and you're you're not hunting October, you're missing out. I mean, it's that there are deer out there that are going to be moving. It's it's not going to be a field edge thing anymore. You know, it's not going to be the same kind of hunt as it was two weeks or a month before. But those deer are going to stage. They're going to eat acorns. They're going to drink in a pond. There's a lot of stuff to do. And you mentioned the fewer people that are out there chasing them around, the more likely you are to have good deer movement. And, you know, I'll tell you, last year was a real eye-opener for me in mid-October because I encountered big bucks in Minnesota in a place that I never thought I would, you know, I, I had never seen a bucket anywhere near the caliber I saw last year on like October 10th. And in Wisconsin, I saw the same thing at, at a time when it just shouldn't have been happening. And I'm sitting here going, this has to at least partially be due to the fact that there are way fewer people out here messing around. Yeah. Well, it's funny when you just said that, when you said you saw these two bucks in my head, the first thing that popped in my head was why? Okay. So we saw these big bucks middle of October. Why? And then you just answered it because you thought the pressure is lower. And this goes back to something you were talking about a little while ago. I can't remember what the specific example was, but just this importance of whenever you observe something, you should always try to examine the why. Like nothing happens by chance, I don't think, in the woods. There's always got to be something behind it. So whenever you see something like that, or at least what I always try to do, is when I observe something or whatever it might be, I then will sit back and think through, okay, what what was the wind or what was the condition or what was the terrain feature or what was the whatever that caused that deer to do that thing. And I think if you keep doing that all the time, that's how you like really begin to learn. Um, Yeah. Do you agree with that, Tony? And then number two, oh, yeah. was there anything else other than the pressure factor during that mid-October time frame that you think led to those sightings? Oh, for sure. Hunting in the cover. You know, I mean, I think, I don't, you know, I have no idea what percentage of tree stands that the average bow hunter hangs that are on field edges or food plot edges or some kind of opening, right? We like to be able to see. It's really this is really rampant in the gun hunting world where they want to be on a power line and shoot 400 yards away. But bow hunters fall into the same thing where we're like, we'd like to be able to see, you know, but those deer after a couple of weeks of getting hunted in those places, they really, really stick to that cover. And, you know, when I hang stands, both of the stands that I saw those big bucks on were in the cover. They were in, in what I, I figured were staging areas. And so you're just in a place where those deer feel comfortable moving you know, would I have had the same results if I was sitting on the same field edge stands I sat in on September 15th? Probably not. And, you know, you can't prove why a deer is moving, but like what you said about there's a reason for everything. Those deer, you know, nature doesn't waste a calorie hardly ever. And so there is a reason for it. Like you said, if you're paying attention to this stuff and, and you know, all of the conditions and where you're hunting and how you're getting in there, and you see these deer doing stuff, you can figure out kind of why. And even if you don't really understand the the total driver for their movements or whatever, it doesn't really matter as long as you know they like doing it. You know, yeah. if, you, if you see a buck cross a creek in a little spot, does it really matter why he crossed it? You know, in three years, a different big buck's going to cross it. Like, does it really matter where they're going? It's fun to figure out, but the cool thing is knowing that a, a mature buck like you know that did that one day and if he did it one day either him or somebody else will do it again yeah you know? yes yeah, it's, it's like just making sure your eyes are open to stuff and like 
not just saying, oh, I saw a big buck there, but saying, oh, I yep. saw a big buck there because there's a creek crossing. And then like taking note of that and to your point, oh, more bucks might do that same thing in the future because there's this creek crossing. I think that yep. accumulation over the years makes it makes a big difference. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, it's, it's easy to talk, to speak in those terms when you hunt a lot of different places because you're, you're used to, you know, new experience, new challenges, learning, watching a lot of different stuff. The harder part sometimes is when you think you know a property really well and it still kicks your butt because mm. you're like, well, the deer like doing this and they don't like doing this, but why can't I get on it? And a lot of times it's because we just make up our mind about certain things or we haven't understood that, that you know, the browse has changed or, you know, maybe some destination food source changed or something. And so if you, if you hunt where you're in a lot of new places a lot, you just have to, you have to consider that stuff or you're going to get smoked, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Speaking of that, then it, was there anything last year that any example like that last year where you had an an aha moment or any big lessons learned or anything else really notable like that? Um, Maybe you already touched on it, but if not, anything that stands out in that regard? Um, I think, I think North Dakota, taught me a lesson, uh, that I should have just, I should have just waited on that wind and used the one night I had and used it right. And I should have been more patient, but I got nervous about, you know, going home without filling a tag. And I, I wanted some more deer in my freezer, but when you, when you're on, you know, I was on pretty consistent movement by some good bucks, but I panicked cause I'm like, well, if I only have one night to do it, then I, I don't know if I can do it. Well, you know, that's sometimes just the hand you're dealt by mother nature. And I should have, I, I should have been more patient, but it, I, I partially wasn't cause I knew I could put my buddy in there and hopefully he would kill one of those big bucks. But just, just watching that and feeling that pressure, like I got to get in there, got to get in there, got in there. And sometimes you just say, I can't overcome mother nature here. I just got to ride it out until things change. You know, and I, I feel like I learned something like that every year where I'm just reminded like, Dude, just just chill out, be patient, and let this stuff unfold. Uh, you know, instead of forcing it, because sometimes I do get pretty aggressive in my tactics. But you know, it's it's just it's, everybody has holes in their game, I guess. Yeah. Once in a while, I run into mine. You know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think that's a pretty good segue then into um, talking about what you're going to do this year. Unless Spencer, do you have any other questions uh, for Tony about what happened in seventeen? No, let's uh, let's hear about this fall. Yeah, you uh, you've already been hunting though, haven't you? I have been hunting. Yeah, I got to hunt down in Florida in the craziest whitetail season out there. Yeah, what was uh, that like? The most miserable. Uh, <laughs> it, it was. It, it was. I, I'll tell you what. I've I've been pretty lucky and traveled to quite a few different places, and I have never been to a place as inhospitable as the swamps in South Central Florida in the end of July, beginning of August, that place does not want humans there. It's (laughs) brutal, brutal. Wow. Just so hot or what else? Oh yeah. I mean the the heat of course is, you know, it's omnipresent. It's everywhere and the humidity, but the bugs, like I, you know, I've spent a lot of time in Northern Minnesota where the mosquitoes are pretty epic and I don't think it, I don't think I've ever seen anything like what Florida was like mosquito wise. And, you know, there's cookie cutter storms every day in the afternoon. So you just all of a sudden get this, 
you know, lightning hitting the ground and just crazy rain for a little bit, this monsoon kind of weather. And so you're, you're like in this place where there's water everywhere and there's alligators everywhere. So you just see these gators in places where you're like, that should not be. And because that, because it's so wet, it pushes some of the other stuff into the high spots, like the snakes. And so it's just this, like, it's this place, man, where it's, it's, really interesting experience but it is not for everyone so would you return yeah i you know it's such a strange deal this, you know it's like elk hunting almost where you go elk hunting and elk hunting can just just totally kick your butt it just can be so not fun in some ways but by the time you're driving home, you're already thinking, how do I do this different next year? Yeah. And Florida, you know, the good thing is we had a really good crew down in Florida. Um, I hunted with some really cool people and it was, everybody was, everybody was up for the misery and the challenge, which was nice because I've been on hunts like that where you have people that need a little more comfort and they can make it really, really bad because they'll start complaining. And this, this crew we had was awesome. And so by the end of it, we were talking about how we could get down there and hunt some on some Osceola's in the spring. So yeah, I'll do it again. Did anyone see any deer? Did anyone kill anything? Was there any tax filled? Uh, Mike Shea from field and stream killed a great buck opening night. Um, and then, you know, we all saw deer. It was just tough. I saw, I saw a couple little bucks, bunch of does killed a pig. You know, that, that was the, the one fun thing about it you know, that kind of kept you going was there were a lot of pigs down there and they were big. And so that's always, it's always fun to have a bonus critter that could run through, you know? Yeah, that's cool. How, what, how do you hunt an area like that? Like what were you, were you targeting food sources or bait or I don't know. How do you hunt in uh, July for whitetails in Florida? So, you know, they have some feeders down there and they have some food plots and then there's just places that they go because it's, you know, high ground. I mean, it's kind of like hunting swamps up here. Um, so it's, it just depends. You know, I didn't see, I never sat like over a feeder, but I sat a few places where I could see feeders and it was like, I it just, I don't think that, you know, midsummer deer in Florida really want to carb load too hard. I don't think they're that drawn to corn, to be honest with you. I think it's just sort of a way of life, like in Texas where, you know, you just, that's just what they do. But I saw way more deer eating greenery and kind of just browsing their way through than focusing on that stuff. And so, and you know, the, the crazy thing was they were just starting to rut when we were there and they rut in the summer. And so I suspect you could probably get, if we would have been a, maybe a week later, 10 days later, um, it would have been pretty heavy chasing and you maybe could have called them in. And in fact, I did grunt one buck in a little guy um, and he came right in on a string. So. You know, you can you can hunt them kind of like we hunt them up here and in the Midwest and out east. It's just a such a different environment. Man, what is next for you then? Or is it uh, going to be antelope or mule deer, whitetail, elk? I'm sure you're going to be someplace else hunting here within a few weeks. Um, I've got. I was just last weekend was in uh, Wisconsin setting up a bear bait site. I've got. Uh, I drew a tag over in Wisconsin and doing a little do-it-yourself thing over there. So. That will open on September 5th, and I'll, I'll hunt bears, and then I'm going to wrap that up, um, hopefully, 
by the ninth, and I'm going to come home for a day, and then I'm going to go down to Nebraska and hunt hunt some whitetails on some public land I've never been on. So those are the first two first two things I'm going to do this year. Public land, Nebraska that you've never been on. Walk me through yep. how you go about planning that. So I I I saw this spot. I went down there uh, upland hunting with my dog two years ago. And my buddy and I go down, we take our dogs in the late season and we just pick chunks of public and we go hunt, you know, pheasants or quail or prairie chickens, depending on where we are in the state. And he, he found this spot and he said, well, there's public land down the road here. Let's go look at it. We got there and drove up to it and it was clearly not upland type terrain. It was bluffs and it was along the river and so we didn't hunt it, but I looked at it and I could see some trails coming down off it, good deer trails, and it was surrounded by some private agriculture. And so I kind of just filed it away. And so this year, uh, I had an elk hunt I was going to go do in Southern Colorado. They shut down the place I was going to go to because of the fires. And so I didn't know if I should try to restart elk planning, which is like real daunting, or if I should just say this just wasn't meant to be this year. And I finally decided I wouldn't go. And so I'm like, I'm going to go hunt that place that we saw. And so I've been looking at that on aerial photos a lot and, you know, spending some serious time on Onyx and looking for some back, you know, backup spots around there. But my plan, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that it's going to be about 95 degrees when I get there. Cause there's two ponds way in the back of this property and I can see, I can see trees that look like they definitely are big enough to put tree stands in on both of them. And so my first strategy is if it's normal to hot conditions, I'm going to go hike right back there, hang a stand and watch that water. If it, if that doesn't pan out, if it's rainy or whatever, um, I've got a few, I don't know, I guess kind of drainages that lead down to private fields that look like they could be places you could catch them in the morning and the evening coming and going. And so if that's, if my first spot doesn't work out, then I'm going to be, that would be plan B on this place. There have been a few times, Tony, where I've been talking to you um, about some hunt that you just did or that you're going to do, and uh, you'll bring up how you found it while you were turkey hunting in the spring. How has um, turkey hunting, doing DIY trips uh, every year, changed things for you as a DIY whitetail guy? Seeing ground, man. It's the same thing with the, you know, if I go into a place quail hunting, um, I may find an amazing whitetail spot. You know, I mean, just, it's just covering ground. And it, one thing I like about turkey hunting, it's, it's different if you're bow hunting because you don't tend to cover as much ground as, as running and gunning with a shotgun. But I use spring turkeys as scouting, you know, whitetail scouting a lot. And I've started to use this upland hunt. This upland hunting is the same kind of thing where, you know, you're, you're out there for a different purpose, but you always got your eye to deer sign and, you know, cool places to be. And so it's just... It's just spending more time out there, you know. What, uh, what, wh- when you start out, so you said you're going to head in there, h- hunt those ponds, see what's going on. If not, you're going to hunt these drainages. In that kind of situation, you said there's those drainages that are leading down to food. Like how, how far away, especially, I'm always wondering about this too, especially these kind of like prairie states. You're kind of out there a little bit. I think it's a little bit different in the Midwest where the distances between, cover and food or how far deer are willing to travel maybe is different do you get i mean can you be pretty far away from that private land and still see movement across that public 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just, it depends where you are and how, how limited the food is this, this place, there's a lot of food around there. It looks like. So that, that will kind of be a, you know, I'll play it how I see it when I get in there. Um, that, that's one thing about the, the big wood stuff that we talked earlier. If I find a property that's got anything worthwhile for them to head to around there, those deer cover some serious ground. And so it's just, it's sort of a situational thing. You know, I mean, you can't, you can do a lot of work ahead of time on aerial photography, but until you get in there and watch and start walking around, it's just, it's hard to know what's going on, but they'll, they'll cover some ground. Okay, well then, before we go any further, we're going to take our final break of the day for a word from our partners at Whitetail Properties. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Tom James, a land specialist out of Indiana. And Tom is going to be talking to us about what to consider when shopping for a property on the edge of suburbia. Uh, That's a great question. Living right outside the shadows of Indianapolis, I'm very familiar with that. And there are some really great hunting ground areas uh, just outside of suburbia. But what you're dealing with a lot of times is being that close to town. Normally those, uh, the prices for those properties are, are labeled with a development or a residential development price. So a lot of times it's hard to find a competitive price that would be relative to something you were looking out for farther out into the into the more rural areas of, of the state. That being said, there can be some phenomenal deer hunting in those areas just outside of the country because a lot of those are sanctuary areas where no hunting is allowed and oftentimes bucks grow to some old ages in those areas. Knowing the community and knowing maybe how the perception for hunting is, one of the last things you want to do is spend a lot of money on a piece of property and you're going to be harassed all the time by non-hunters or the issue with a deer leaving your property and you know, going off onto surrounding landowners if you do happen to have a harvest. So considerations are cost, access, the, the, the general mood of the hunting uh, community around that, and, and, and making sure that you can get along with your neighbors in those areas. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Tom currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash James. That's J-A-M-E-S. Yeah. Yeah. So, so keep, keep moving us through the schedule then. What's next? Um, after Nebraska, Minnesota will open. I'll be hunting private here. Um, I think. And then you sell out Tony. (laughs) What? Whenever I hear you're hunting private (laughs) ground, I think you're a sellout. (laughs) I'm taking the easy way out. I know next thing you know, I'll be all on guided and outfitted hunts. Um, It's a slippery slope. So I got, I know it is. That's my gateway drug. That farm in southeastern Minnesota. Um, that's it's it's honestly my my guilty pleasure because I just love hunting it so much. I grew up hunting there, and I just I just want to be there. It's one of my favorite places. You know, it's just a dairy farm. I have permission on, so I always you know people are always like, "How come you don't hunt public in Minnesota more?" And I'm like, "I just don't want to. I just want to go hunt this place." You know, but I'll do that, and then I'm going to do. Um, South Dakota on the end of September at some point. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly when, 27th or something. I'm going to head out there. And then I'll head to North Dakota. And then I kind of left it open in the end of October, beginning of November, in case I need to go back to Nebraska or do something else. And then I've got eight days carved out to go hunt some new stuff in Oklahoma. So I got a pretty pretty full schedule lined up. Yeah. So the North Dakota and South Dakota, are those the same spots that you've been going in those states or is that new stuff? 
Um, the North Dakota will be the same stuff, same area. South Dakota, I got a few new places I'm looking at that are in the general same area. Um, so I'm not, I, I don't know how that'll shake out. The, you know, the Oklahoma stuff is brand new. I've never been anywhere near this, this area that I'm going to. So that'll be a fun one because it'll be, you know, the rut should be cranking and it's totally, you know, foreign to me. So we'll see. So I then have to ask, what? how do you plan to approach that then? Oh, uh, well... This one, the the spot that I got, I've got picked out, is I don't know. It's pushing on four thousand acres, and most of it is timbered, which is kind of strange, Oklahoma. Uh, but I'm gonna end up. I'm I'm looking for some water on there because they're gonna be chasing. I'm looking at some of the private stuff around there because there's some fields that they could be going to. But I think it's going to be more of a, you know, pick a trail, start walking, and hang and hunt. Um, it looks, it looks like the Oklahoma version of Big Woods, and so I don't really know what to expect on there. the The other places I've hunted in Oklahoma have been way easier to figure out because of, you know, what they had on them as far as public. You know, it's easy to define water sources and food sources and stuff. And this one is going to be a little bit of a puzzle, I think. Hmm. How much time do you have allotted to figuring that puzzle out? Uh, about eight days, so we'll see. The last, you know, the last time I went to Oklahoma, you know, it's it's a it's a haul, but it's a fun state to hunt. They have a lot of deer, a lot of turkeys, and I don't know if we'll run into any pigs in this spot or not, but that's always a possibility. So it's it's fun to go to a place where you got buck tags and doe tags and a good population of critters, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Earlier this year, Tony, I uh, wrote an article talking about the top three DIY states, and I was just basing that off of like tag costs, season length, uh, public land available, um, some general numbers you can find based on harvest statistics and uh, amount of deer in the state and stuff. And what I came up with just from research on my computer was South Dakota, Ohio, and Nebraska. But you would be the actual authority on this subject. So what would you say would be your top three DIY states? Well, for me personally, uh, you know, it's tough to beat the Dakotas. It's real tough to beat Nebraska, um, Oklahoma. I don't, I just don't have enough experience in Oklahoma to say for sure, but it is a really cool state. Um, it just, you know, it depends where you're at. You know, when I say that, that doesn't do anybody in Pennsylvania a whole lot of good probably. And so, you know, you kind of factor in, well, how close are you to Kentucky? How close are you to Ohio? You know, I mean, it, it just, it depends where you're at. But personally for me, I'm, I'm a real big fan of the Dakotas and Nebraska. And I've, I've been looking really hard at Northern Missouri. I just haven't, uh, haven't carved out any serious time to go spend some time on public down there. But there's just, that's, you know, the cool thing about it is, is you know, it's fun to write those things. It's fun to talk about. But the cool thing is that we just have all this public to hunt. Like, even if it's, you know, even if you're not going to go kill booners, just anywhere you're living, you probably have the chance to go hunt public without too much of an investment of travel. And that's pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned a lot of the the Great Plains states there. I think everyone but Kansas. Uh, What about further east? What are some of your favorite states, uh, you know, in the Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia? Tennessee area 
Well, I like Kentucky. Um, you know, I, I don't, because of where I live, it's just so much easier for me to go west than east. You know, I, I want to go where there's fewer people and not more. And so most of the time, if I travel east to hunt, it's to Wisconsin. Um, I just, it doesn't make any sense for me if I can drive to Nebraska in seven hours to drive 10 to go east somewhere. You know, I just, it's just what I do. And, you know, having twin six-year-olds at home, I need to pick places where I have the best chance to go tag out four days or five days or something like that. You know, I mean, if I had, if I had unlimited time and didn't have, you know, daddy duty, I would probably go hunt a heck of a lot more states and I would, I would try them out more, you know? Okay. Spencer, you got to put your earmuffs on because this is going to give you a headache. Um, (laughs) but, but Tony, this is something that you and me were kind of chatting about the other day, uh, just offline, just this whole deal that I'm, I'm new to being a new dad, but you're in it for a little while now. Yep. How, how does that factor into doing what you do? You know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm definitely struggling with this right now. Just thinking through how can I make this hunting season as decent as possible for my wife and obligations with the family and everything. How do you balance all these hunting trips and everything with the responsibilities you've got back home? Oof. Uh, it's, it's a tough one to figure out. Finding some equilibrium, especially in your case with a little one, is tough. Um, that's one of the main drivers for me as far as hunting the states I do and doing as much research ahead of time as possible. You know, the, the more heavy lifting you can do from home and the less time you have to be away from home, the better. And so for me, you know, I didn't know, you know, when we had, we had two kids at one time, I was like, I have no idea how much this is going to cut down my time to go and be gone. But you knew, you know, like I knew it was going to be significant, but what it really did for me was cause me to laser focus on, you know, doing things correctly. And so it actually hasn't cut down on my success at all. It's just forced me to work smarter. And you'll see that where not only do you just not, you're, you're just not going to go be gone as much, for a while when you got a little guy at home, but you're going to want to be home as soon as you can. It's a weird thing. You know, you think about it and you're like, oh, I can't wait to go to Montana or wherever. And you know, when you're there a couple of days, you're like, man, I miss my kids, you yeah. know, and so you want to go home. So it's, it, it can force you to really focus on the process and it just, just try to be as efficient as possible. I feel like from, from hearing you describe some of these past hunts, it, it sounds like, you know, I feel like maybe a lot of people tend to think like one of these out-of-state hunts, usually like seven days or 10 days, you need a bunch of time. But it sounds to me that a lot of your trips are like four-day hunts or five-day hunts. So you're a little bit tighter on yep. these time frames. Is, is that right? And then number two, like, do you do anything differently because of that than you might if you had that full long stretch that some people do? Yeah, I, I usually only give myself four or five days. Uh, five days is a pretty long one for whitetails. You know, if I'm going elk hunting or something, it's different, of course. But you know, you don't you you don't want to waste a sit. So if you if you go for four days, let's say you got one day to scout and hang stands and four days to hunt, you have eight sits basically. Unless you're you know rut hunting, you're gonna sit all day or whatever. But generally speaking, morning, evening, morning, evening, you know, and if you miss one of those or you screw one of them up or you sit someplace where the wind sucks or something and you, you, you lose one, it, it stinks. You lose two. No, there's a quarter of your time gone. And so you just try to make, 
good decisions. And it's, you know, this, this probably sounds weird, but this is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm like really into working out in the last five years, because when I show up and I have one day to hang stands or scout, like I, I sometimes you got to go dark to dark and get as a ton of work done. So you have those chances. So you have that morning spot and you have this one for the wind, that direction and another one for the wind. And you, you just make the most of it, you know? Is there anything else that you're doing? Eh, yeah, I've got my assumptions based on some of the things you've already mentioned. But from an efficiency standpoint, anything else you're doing before the hunt to make sure that that four or five days is as seamless, as smooth as possible? I don't know if there's any other kind of digital work you're doing. or I mean, I know you've talked about e-scouting. You've talked about backup plans. Anything more you can elaborate on that just for these efficient, quick hunts? Yeah, uh planning them out correctly i mean so what i and what i mean by that not only you know like the scouting of course um but the gear that i'm using the 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 camping equipment i'm using the the places i'm camping in relation to where i'm hunting um all of those things i factor in because it's just you know if you it's easy to set up all these little roadblocks that you don't see coming and this, this is why it's hard for people to do this that don't do it as much as I do because they go and they're like, oh, sleeping in a tent's not that much fun. Or, you know, my, my cot or my sleeping pad, no, it's no good. I'm not getting any sleep and it's a miserable experience. The more stuff that you can take care of like that so you're comfortable, so you're eating better, you know, not eating just junk food all the time, um, you just feel better getting better sleep, all of that stuff matters. You will hunt way better if you're – you know, if you're physically happy, you know, and it's, it's not, it's a strange thing to talk about. We, we kind of talk about it in the elk world a lot in the Western backcountry stuff, but you know, if you're not in very good shape and you're going to go try to hang a bunch of stands and hike, you know, seven miles in the breaks in South Dakota, it's probably not going to happen. So you're going to end up not having as many setups, not feeling as good, maybe not sleeping as well because you're sore, maybe not as driven to go do it. So all of it ties together. Um, yeah, yeah. There, there, there's a lot. There's a lot to it. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a really good point. So so now I'm gonna ask you a three part question, which is tackling those three things you just mentioned, but explaining to me exactly what you do. So from a fitness standpoint, what are you doing specifically to make sure your to make sure your physical fitness isn't keeping you from having success from a whitetail standpoint? I guess that we'll just go one at a time. So what are you doing that from? So the the best thing I did was give up drinking five years ago <laughs> for, for a lot of reasons. That was a good, good idea for a person like me. Um, but I, I divide my time up between running and lifting weights. Um, I do, I try to do about eight workouts a week. So either, you know, try to do it, you know, run four times, lift four times at least during the week. And that might only be, 45 minutes a session or an hour a session, but I try to do that uh, just to maintain and get the cardio in, get some, get some core work, some weight work in. So you're, I just feel so much better hanging stands and carrying stuff into the woods and dragging deer out. And it's, it's, you know, it's a process like anything else. You know, we want, it, it, we want shortcuts to everything, right? You know I mean? It, they're going to sell you grunt tubes and all kinds of stuff to promise a deer comes into you, but they don't really work that well most of the time. It's the same thing with fitness. You know, like there's no way to do it other than just to commit yourself and make it a way of your life. 
But if you do, you know, your hunting will be a lot, you'll, you'll enjoy it a lot more. And so I'm just, I'm just kind of locked into that phase right now where I know how much, you know, and it's not just hunting. I mean, a lot of people say they get in shape for elk hunting, but you're really getting in shape for your entire life to be better. And, you know, the, one of the great benefits is, yeah, you can climb a mountain better and you can carry a quarter of an elk out, but in the white tail world, we don't really focus on that that much. And it is a huge part. If you're going to do the kind of hunting that I do a lot, if you're not in very good shape, it's really hard and it's, it ties into everything. Yeah. Yeah. Especially this public land kind of stuff where you really need to get in there after stuff. You're hiking around a lot, carrying and sticking stands. I mean, that, that helps just, it seems to me like, I don't, I don't think a bunch of whitetail hunters, we don't need to all be Cameron Haynes, but I think if you can have some reasonable level of fitness so that at least your body isn't bringing you down. So that's not the reason, you know, there's, as we talk about a lot, there's so many variables in a deer hunt. There's so many things that can go wrong. There's so many things that you can't control that something is in your control as your body and your physical fitness. That's something you can, you know, have some yep. say over. So why not try to control that variable and, and at least make sure that that's not bringing it down. So I, I a hundred percent agree. Next one, you talked about camping, choosing where you're going to camp, what kind of gear you're going to have. Do you have any recommendations as far as your sleeping setup, your camping setup, all that kind of stuff to make sure that's smooth and as comfortable as it can be or as functional as possible? Yeah. Uh, go, go luxury any way you can. So I used to stay in a little tiny tent. It'd be me and a buddy usually. And, you know, we're stepping over each other. You can't stand up in it. And it's just not very much fun. I'm to the point now, if I can get away with it, because I can drive my truck up to a lot of the places I camp, I use a, I use like a pretty heavy duty six person dome tent. And I use that for myself and I can set up a little coffee making station in there. I can dry some clothes out. I can stand up fully. I'm, you know, I'm six, two. I like to be in the morning, not be stooped over getting my clothes on and just use a good cot, a good sleeping pad, a good sleeping bag, all of that stuff. It, it just makes things so much nicer. I mean, I think about, I got a, I got a pretty sweet system down for camping now where I can sleep and I feel comfortable I think about how many years I hunted where I was in, you know, just really low quality stuff and just didn't, didn't appreciate what I could do for myself by just getting a little bit better stuff, you know? And, and then I'm reminded of that when I go elk hunting and I'm in a little tiny tent, you know, sleeping on a sleeping pad on the ground. And I'm like, Oh, this is horrible. You know what I mean? It's a fun experience, but when you're used to kind of the cushy, you know, Kardashian style camping, and then you go to then you go to that elk setup. You're like, oh, now I remember. Uh-huh. But yeah, it, it, at the very least, it, you know, I, I realize not everybody's going to go out and buy a six man tent and all this this stuff. A cot with a good thick foam sleeping pad is a great start. That uh-huh. takes you a long way toward having a good night's sleep. Any f- uh, specific brand or model or anything like that, or other favorite gear? Um, I'm using right now I'm using Cabela's stuff. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's way better stuff than I'm using, but I have a nice Cabela's cot and I have a, I don't know what the, the model name of it is, but it's a, it's a foam pad. It's three inches thick and they make it. I, I don't know what it costs. I can't remember, but it's so much better than any kind of blow up pad I've ever used or anything. It is, it is 
for camping, it's really comfortable. Hmm. I can definitely attest to the, how important that kind of stuff is. Cause it goes right back to like your physical, not your fitness, but like just your physical comfort. If you're miserable and you can't sleep, it becomes just so much easier to take shortcuts during the hunt or to lose your focus during the hunt or whatever it might be making mistakes. It all kind of ties yeah. back to that state of mind, state of your body, which, well, yeah. And it, when you, if you're, if you're not sleeping well, you just will not hunt very well. And it's so tempting to sleep in. It's so tempting to talk yourself into, Oh, I just need a good, oh, yeah. good night's sleep. And you know, if you, if you're running on eight hunts or 10 hunts for an entire trip and you've, this is your one, one shot to go do something cool, missing the, missing the morning is, you know, it's just not an option. Yeah. So, so okay. That brings me to a question. This is something that I have, have debated with myself many times and you just kind of answered it for me, but I guess I'll put it out there again and see if this is what you mean. So I always used to be of the mind, like, like talking maybe like the rut two weeks, the first two weeks of November, usually I hunt every day, all day. And I'm getting out to my tree stand like an hour and a half before daylight. And I'm sitting the entire day. I get back home or get back to camp or get back to the hotel or whatever it is I'm doing. And I've got a couple hours to work and then I fall asleep. And then you're up, four hours later and you're doing it all over again. And so I do that. And as you know, anyone knows that is just a crazy physical grind. Like it definitely wears down on you. So yeah, that's what I do usually. But then like last year I started thinking, am I actually, what, what's the better scenario is grinding it out and being out there the whole time, the whole trip every morning, super early, but maybe being at a deteriorated mental state or physical state. So your focus maybe isn't quite on point by day seven, you're not feeling good or you're falling asleep in the tree or because you're not focused, you look at your phone and a big buck passes by that you could have got a shot. So is that a risk to doing it that way? Or so would it be better to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to give myself one sleep in morning because then I know that my quality of attention and focus and all those things will be so much better for the rest of it. Um, I I battle these two ideas in my head. What are your thoughts? So here, here's the litmus test for that. Uh, Are you still having fun? Right. Is, is the deteriorated state you're in where you're super tired and the work's piling up and your wife's kind of mad at you, is that to the point where it's, it's you know, leeching some of the enjoyment out of it? Because if that's the case, sleep in or yeah. take a day off. If, you know, you're having awesome sits and, you know, 100 million people aren't contacting you for work all the time and it's fun and your wife's like, go get them, buddy, then if you're in the right mental state, keep going. But, you know, that's, that's a great it's a great question because we always look at this from the perspective of what's, what's my route from here to a big buck or from here to success. But really we, we, we forget so easily that we're supposed to be out there. We're, we're out there cause we enjoy it. It's supposed to be fun. And if you're out there and you're super tired and you're sick of waking up and it's not that much fun, then it's probably time to just chill out for a second, you know, enjoy it and get back out there when you're refreshed and you're, and you, and you can enjoy it because the worst thing that you can do with something like this is just, you know, drive it right into the ditch because you just, yeah. you're so driven to succeed when really, I mean, we're just hunting rabbits with antlers, man. Like we're just, <laughs> we're out there super lucky to live in this country and have the opportunities we have and to, you know, people have gotten divorced over this to, to, 
to to go to that level, it's not fun anymore. Mm-hmm. So if it's if you're sitting there, and, and that's the same thing with whatever deer you want to shoot. You know, if you're if you're locked into 200 inch bucks and it's not fun to hunt because you're never going to see one, then you're doing it wrong. Find something, you know, find find what deer is going to make you happy and shoot that sucker. You know, I talk about that all the time, but I just I I believe it in my heart of hearts, man. Yeah, no, it's a it's a good point. It's something that every year I need to have like a mini self intervention, even though I know this stuff and like I go into the season knowing it. I I because I am so achievement focused, goal focused, so like determined when it comes to the actual hunt that every year without without fail. I find some point in the season where I'm just, I'm losing the fun out of it. I'm just so focused or so frustrated or so tired or whatever. And I, I'm at least at the point now where I can recognize it. And I know when to yep. like kind of slap myself and say, Hey man, chill out. Remember this is supposed to be fun. Get back to the basics. And usually that's, that's about the time when I decide to do what I just said. I'll take a morning off or I'll take a day off and like take the wife out for dinner or do something like that. Just kind of reset. Yep. And then it's amazing how just that little reset changes not just the actual quality of your hunts after that but your mindset your enjoyment even just that little bit can really flip things and you get that when you get that renewed excitement all of a sudden versus like yeah. the oh gosh i can't i can't imagine waking up again in the morning or those moments like when the alarm clock goes off in the morning and you've got one of two feelings either one of it's like oh god no or the other one's like all right yeah. i'm ready that <laughs> yeah. just a little intervention can make a big difference there so i well and it, what you're what you're talking about is just the you know getting your head right and that matters a lot when you're doing something as challenging as bow hunting whitetails. If you don't, if your head's not in the game for some reason, physical, mental, what's going on at home, what's going on at work, you're not going to hunt the way you want to, and it's going to snowball. So you're, what you're saying there is taking some time off and having a little intervention. I'm the same way, man. Usually, usually it's kind of, you know, brought on me by my wife. We'll be like, (laughs) man, you know, maybe, maybe it's time Let's, let's take the kids and go mini golfing or something tonight. Let's stay out of a tree and just have some fun. Yeah. And you're right. It's just like, okay, I, I reset. I, I'm, I'm back mentally where I need to be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think every year I'm seeing that becoming more and more important to make sure I take that time to just, to just reset at least once a season or once during the rut. I kind of need that. And I think especially now with a, with a child, I feel like that's going to probably be more important than ever. So maybe yep. that, that is one of those times like, okay, if there happens to be that day where there's 50 mile an hour winds or where there's 90 degree temperatures in November kind of know, okay, you know what? I, I probably do need maybe one little one afternoon or one morning or one something where I'm going to need this little reset. If you have to take a reset day or reset afternoon, try to time it. So it coincides with the, the worst potential conditions, even though, yeah, it still could be good. If you have to take a break, maybe yeah. it's a good way to line it up, take advantage of those slightly lower odds days or sure. evenings and, line those things up yep absolutely spencer do you have any thoughts on this now that you're a newly married man and you've got several kids on the way soon and and all that (laughs) uh at at this point i still largely function like a bachelor when it comes to hunting Uh, (laughs) all right we've been together for that's right we've been together for like eight years uh and i've uh been always a, a hardcore hunter so she knows the deal right now but uh, i'm sure once kids come like a decade from now that will change can you relate to uh, this uh, hey how, you... how old is she sure. <laughs> I, I am 26 she is 24 24 okay well enjoy the next four or five years and <laughs> hunt hunt your butt off because this 
this young mentality that you have is going to come to a screeching <laughs> halt when she decides that it's time to make some babies. Your life's going to change. Man. Yeah, man, it all deteriorates once you hit thirty. I mean, my body's falling apart, your mind's falling apart. <laughs> it's all downhill. So yeah, soak it in while you got it. <laughs> yep, enjoy it. Oh man, um, you know the final thing I was really curious about back to like the camping physical fitness like these outside factors real quick is there anything from like an eating standpoint i mean I, I i know for me i used to like on our rut vacations or something me and my buddies we'd get like wendy's every night or pizza every night and yep. we'd eat like donuts in the morning and the last couple of years i've kind of realized that that's not working for me um yep. do you have anything on the eating standpoint that helps you be more effective for these hunts yeah i uh i I am like a junk food addict. Like I can't, I've never had moderation to anything in my life. Like I have to be super careful. And so what I do is I, I prep one big meal for dinner every night that I'm going to be in camp. And it's always, you know, venison, uh, asparagus, peppers, some kind of, you know, vegetable venison mix, and then some rice, you know, instant rice I'll throw in there or whatever. So I have one, good meal a day that isn't like mini chocolate donuts and just horrible you know empty carbs mm -hmm. and that seems to sort of center things a little bit where you're like okay i know this is what i'm eating tonight it's going to be really good it's good for me it sort of carries over into the morning and it keeps me like you said you know from going and eating fast food all the time or you know whatever the worst options are so i i do I, I discipline myself for one meal a day and it's, it's usually the biggest meal, obviously, but I have to prep it ahead of time. Otherwise I won't do it. Yeah. You know, if I just, you know, if I, if I don't make it really easy just to dump it right into a saute pan and cook it up, then I won't do it. Yeah. I'm exactly the same way. I started two years ago doing the exact same thing, having those pre-prepared meals and it comes yeah. out. I feel like so many things as like a serious whitetail hunter, it's, you need to find ways to, by planning ahead of time, make things easy that normally would maybe would be inconvenient. Like there's things you know you should do, but if they're inconvenient or hard, you have the ch possibility of, you know, cutting corners, not doing it quite the right way. But if you can ahead of time plan ways to make it easier, simpler, done ahead of yep. time, whether that's cooking meals or whether that's you're planning for a hunt or whether that's prepping your gear anything you can do ahead of time to make it easier more convenient smoother it seems like that extra work ahead of time can just pay off dividends uh, across the board for all these kinds of things we're talking about oh it does it's it's you know it's spencer doesn't know this yet because he's just a little pup but <laughs> us older us, us older wiser men we know that that's the key to enjoying anything is mm -hmm. you know getting your, getting your act together ahead of time and putting in some work ahead of time. It makes, it makes the whole process so much better. Yeah. And I'm so glad that Dan couldn't make it today and that Spencer's on here because I feel like we're changing, we're changing your life right now, Spencer. I think if you, <laughs> I hope you're taking notes because this is really going to impact the trajectory of your next 20 to 30 years. Yeah. I would have just turned this part of the podcast off. Right now. <laughs> yeah. We are really doing you a big favor here, Spencer. Yeah. So, so if, right. if this isn't interesting to you at all, Spencer, do you have any final things that are of interest? Any any last questions for uh, for Tony or anything? One thing I haven't heard you talk about is trying to get private access. And so, when you're traveling out of state and you're you know going there to hunt public, 
do you ever find yourself knocking on doors or, um, you know, scouting private land or, or do you find that to be fool's gold and, you know, just not worth your time? It's, it's lost time maybe. It, yeah. I, I used to knock on some doors a long time ago and it just never was really worth it. And so I found if I just focus on the public and figuring out some random chunk of public land somewhere, I'm just better off. And, you know, I'm not saying if I were you know, in camp somewhere and a farmer drove up and said, hey, I got a thousand acres down the road you can bow on. I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. I, I don't seek it out anymore. I seek it out in Minnesota still. Like if I'm talking to somebody and they mention they own some woods or something, I'll, I'll investigate that for sure. But if I'm traveling just about anywhere, I'm just, I'm to the point now where I'm just focusing on the public. It's just easier. And, you know, I know, you know, maybe if you were mining for more opportunities out there, you could find some cool stuff, but. I just, I'm digging this process of hunting public and it's just, it's what I'm focused on, you know? So that's kind of, I, I don't, I don't actively seek those opportunities. On that same note, do you sometimes find public ground that looks too good and like has a ton of hunters there where maybe you need to look for something that, uh, you know, isn't manicured for whitetails or, uh, you know, something like that maybe has cattle on it and is a less than ideal property. Oh yeah. I, I, anything that's, it, it does, to me, it doesn't really matter how it looks. It matters how easy it is to get to. If something's easy to access, there's going to be hunters in there most of the time. You know, if it's easy to access and it looks like amazing whitetail property, yeah, it'll be covered in people. So I'm just looking for harder to access areas. They, they don't have to look amazing. They don't have to, I, I, I just want places that people don't want to go. Yeah. Yeah. It brings to mind for me, um, you know, sometimes there'll be public land parcels where they, the state or the county or whatever it might be has planted crops or food plots or something yep. where they lease out some ground to farmers. And so I feel like that's one of those things that you see it and you're like, oh, wow, food plots on public land. That's awesome. But it's kind of like this ringing bell to every other hunter too, just draws them all yep. in. I feel like that's a perfect example of something that looks great, but probably actually because it looks so great, ends up making it not so great. Hey, oh yeah, I've seen that a lot. But at the same time, I've scouted some public land down in Iowa that looks as dreamy as anything you're going to see down there anywhere. And I, I, I can't say this for certain because I haven't hunted it yet, but just from the investigation I've done and the scouting, I think that there's some exceptions to that rule. Generally speaking, I don't like a state planted food plot or the easy you know, the, the no brainer food source that everybody can see from the road. That's, that's not my style, but I think if you get into a certain area with maybe limited access or limited tags, you can find that place that looks too good to be true, but it's awesome. And you're not going to be overrun with people. Yeah. Got to find those hidden gems. Yep. Well, I, um, as always, have enjoyed this one, Tony, and I'm excited. You know, just a couple, a oh, week and a half from now, I'm going to kick off my own public land hunt out there, and we'll probably be doing a lot of things you're talking about. So uh, I appreciate you uh, doing your share and getting me pumped up and giving me a few more ideas, uh, as you always do. Uh, but before we go, anything, uh, I know you've got a few cool projects in the works right now. That uh, Anything you want to mention like that? Yeah, man. Uh, we have a we have a pretty cool thing going on for North American Whitetail, where Layden Force, the associate publisher there, he's a he's a good old boy from Missouri who loves to bow hunt. He and I kind of came up with this this project called Project Public, 
where we're chronicling our fall through North American Whitetail's Instagram page with a hashtag Project Public. And so we're just showing scouting and the process. And when we get into hunting here, we'll be showing, you know, the setting up camp, hopefully some butcher stuff, all kinds of just, just the little details. And there'll be some other aspects to it. But, you know, if anybody wants to follow along and see how we're doing almost in real time, that's going to be how to do it. It's, it should be pretty cool. Um, the other thing that I have going on, I was hoping to have it finished for this podcast. And I think I'm, I'm about 99.7% of the way there, but I've got a, a bow hunting public land whitetail book coming out. And I just, I ran into a little bit of a design issue, but it's, it's super close to being released. It'll be released way before most of these whitetail seasons open up. And I just, I wrote it partially because I kept doing seminars and people keep, kept asking me if I had like a comprehensive, uh, you know, write up of my strategy and people would ask me for the book. And I'm like, you know, I've written quite a few books and never done this one. And I thought, well, I should do this. And so that's going to hit really, really soon. They'll be able to get that off of Amazon um, here probably within you know, a couple of days. So awesome. I'm pretty excited about that. Too. Yeah, and I can say I've uh, I've got to preview at least a, a, a draft of it, and there's some there's some definitely good stuff in there. So uh, if people want to find that on Amazon, what's the title again? They need to search for. It'll be Bow Hunting Public Land Whitetails. Perfect. And uh, they'll be able to find it on my uh, my page. I've got another another book on there, and then I've got a, another novel coming out here shortly too. But that one, you know, this crowd, the, the interest should be in that book, and it's it's pretty comprehensive and it's, it's not, uh, it's different than a lot of the magazine work that I do. And the, those, those kind of titles, cause it's, it's my own. So I kind of got to say what I, what I fully think about everything. So it's, <laughs> you, you, you should buckle in and prepare for some of my opinions if you, if you pick it up and I hope you do, cause it's, it's, it covers this process pretty heavily. So it was, it was, it was a fun one to write. It's been a nightmare to, to edit and <laughs> finalize but writing it was a lot of fun so yeah that's awesome well i know a lot of people are going to be able to find that to be a, uh, a helpful tool just like uh just like all these conversations so tony i just want to say thank you and um man i hope we can talk here i'm, I'm sure spencer's going to loop you in for some radio episodes if you're up for it giving us updates throughout yep. the season um so we'll be able to follow along and i'll be following um the project project public or public project Project, Project Public. Public. Project Public. All yep. right. We'll be following along there. And man, I hope you have a great season. Well, I appreciate it, Mark. I, I hope you guys have a good season too. And I'm, you know, maybe we'll chat this, this coming spring or something and hash out how we, how we did and see, see where we ended up. I'm hoping, uh, there's gonna be a lot of success stories in that, in that conversation. So <laughs> There'll be a few. You yeah. know there'll be a few, so that'll be good. Yep. And Spencer, you can feel free to tune out that because I'm sure we'll talk about balancing our families <laughs> and I know how that yep. I know how that is for you. So all right. Well, thank you, Tony. Spencer, anything final from you? Nope. I uh, am looking forward to the book. When we did our recap of Rut Radio back in January, I had Tony on and I uh, introduced him by saying he is one of the best whitetail hunters I know. And I mean that. Uh, so covering this subject from Tony, I'm excited to, to see what he has. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Agreed. All right. Well, let's shut this one down. And that's going to do it. So my only updates for you are the usual rating or reviews on iTunes, please. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. It's all under Wired to Hunt. 
subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and you might be having hunting season kicking off next weekend if you're in South Dakota or Montana or Kentucky or North Dakota or a handful of other states. And if that's the case, this last week of preparation, it's 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 so important. Make sure you check every piece of equipment. Make sure you have a list of everything you need to have packed. I can't tell you how many times I've forgotten something important on the first hunt of the year. I'm promising myself I'm not going to do it again. So uh, make sure you don't make the same mistakes I have. Best time of year is coming right up. I'm super excited. I'm sure you guys are too. So best of luck to everybody out there. Until next time then, I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.